from today's psalm. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Good morning again, and welcome to the 30th Sunday of the coronavirus in this season of unordinary time. Thanks, Bonda Moyer, for this reference. Now, last week I was moved, as were so many of you, by Reverend Peggy's powerful words. It might, in, in what might be called a soul-searing lament for division. Peggy reminded us that with God, there is no single pie where one group's gain causes another's loss, that God is the source of limitless grace. And as we persist in this endless season of pandemic, I found myself, before hearing the sermon, harboring many resentments, many places where I felt sharply divided from my friend and my neighbor, whether it's about wearing a mask or a political affiliation or where they get their news or even what church they attend. I discovered lots of ways that I was cutting God's kingdom into little pieces of pie, and that the more pie they got, the less there was for me. So Peggy's words were a much-needed balm to my soul, a reminder that in God's universe, there's grace enough for us all. And my peace lasted about 48 hours until a dumpster fire of a presidential debate plunged me back into a world of division and discord and resentment. The less said about this, the better, especially from the pulpit. All I can say is, we are better than this. And I realized that I needed to change my narrative or my story in this pandemic, in this season of endless division. I can rest in the peace of God's never-ending realizing of God's kingdom, no matter how dark things look. But I can't just be a bystander. I have to do something. I have to find hope. Now, the Sam Cooke song, A Change is Going to Come, came to mind as I thought about that. It's about the inevitability of hope, especially in darkness. Lord, there's been a time that I thought I couldn't last for long, but now I think I'm able to carry on. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change is going to come. Oh, yes, it will. Change is going to come. Oh, yes, it will. Cook wrote this in 1963 on the eve of the civil rights battles, and, and he died in 64 before it was released. But nevertheless, it became a theme song for the civil rights efforts in this country. And there's something redemptive, I find, about Cook's words resonating from the grave, moving a people to march, to hope, to make that change happen. I'm asking you right now, don't you feel a little bit of something just like that? Just under the surface, that sense that the change is happening, whether we like it or not. And isn't that just like God, who'd make a worldwide reset, the COVID-19 pandemic, along with social unrest and political division, who would make all that what it takes to crack us open so a change going to come? Isn't that just like God? Now, today's readings reflect just such a massive change as I think we're feeling. In Philippians, 
Paul places his own story at the center of a big change. He's writing to the small and conservative military town of Philippi. It's the first church he established in Europe, and it's deep within Roman influence. And he knows the hardships that the Philippians are enduring. You see, these Gentile God-fearers are using anti-patriotic language for this Jesus. They're calling him Lord, calling him Kyrios. Hey, that's language reserved for the emperor. And they're refusing to participate in the temple festivals. Further proof that they're opposing almighty Rome. How dare they? Much of the letter is about Paul's urging them to put on the mind of Christ so they too can endure any hardship. Here he uses his own story to get them not to look back, to not let a nostalgia for the way things used to be cloud the immensity and glory of what's coming. As a Jew, he was by all rights a righteous man, he tells us, a Pharisee persecuting the church, blameless under the law. If anyone should resist change, it would be Paul. He's got a lot of privilege to protect. But instead, he throws himself into the middle of change. He reconfigures entirely Israel's story of election, the Messiah and exaltation, into a story of Jesus Christ. Paul's righteousness is not in conforming to Torah, but in faith in God's righteousness in Christ. And he's no longer the persecutor. He becomes the persecuted, fearing for his very life in an Ephesian prison. See, Paul knew a change is going to come, and he welcomed it. And today's gospel reading, the parable of the wicked tenants, is actually more of an allegory than it is a parable. And we quickly see it's directed to the temple leaders and the Pharisees. Jesus is in the temple, he's surrounded by the crowds, and he's ranting at these leaders. Now, he's wise enough not to call them out directly, which would get him thrown in prison but instead uses the wicked tenant story to make them realize their disfavor with God. By the end, they understand this, but can do nothing because of Jesus' popularity. And in the middle of the reading, there's an interesting exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees and chief priests. He finishes the story of the wicked tenants with a question. Now, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Put those miserable wretches to death and lease the vineyard to other tenants. Tenants who will bring him the produce at harvest time. That's their reply. And Jesus' response neither affirms nor denies the response, but it kind of a, comes out of nowhere. He cites Isaiah. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Just what does a cornerstone have to do with the just destruction of those wretched tenants. What does that, that have to do with law and order, with justice? Even today, wouldn't most of us agree that the vineyard tenants have to be tried and punished for their actions? That's the law and order episode we'd expect, isn't it? Change is going to come. Yes, it will. And Jesus goes further. This is important. The rejected cornerstone becomes a stumbling block. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and will crush anyone on whom it falls. These aren't two kinds of death, though, but a choice between redemption and destruction. When we fall on the stone, the resurrected Christ, 
We are broken from our previous selves. And we're remade in Christ. We're inserting ourselves into Christ's story of life, death, and resurrection. But if we don't do this, the crushing stone falls on us and destroys us. Been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change going to come. Oh, yes, it will. You know, it's been said the only proponent of change is a baby with a wet diaper. Depending on where you are on the political spectrum these days, you may find yourself agreeing or disagreeing with this statement, which begs the question, where's the gospel? Where's the good news for those on the other side of this political divide? If the gospel doesn't speak to anyone, everyone, can it speak for anyone? If the gospel doesn't speak to everyone, can it speak for anyone? And that's where the cornerstone, the stumbling block comes in. You see, God's project is so much greater than individual personalities and politics. God's big project is one of unification, of getting us to overcome petty division, to realize and love our shared humanity. We're invited to look through a God lens, not our own. In today's Old Testament reading, we heard about the commandment not to create idols and made me think of the influential book Dynamics of Faith by the 20th century theologian Paul Tillich, Paul Tillich because he wrote extensively about faith and idolatry and how easily the latter, that is idolatry, can replace faith. Part of being human, he claims, is to have what he calls an ultimate concern. We choose faith in God as an ultimate concern when it transcends everything we think, do, or believe. Ultimate concern is a big deal. The problem is, Tillich says, we all too easily substitute other things as ultimate concerns in terms of value. Things like nationalism, or success, or politics, material stuff, and so forth. We replace those for God. And Tillich calls that idolatry. And the key to understanding where we're putting, whether we're putting ultimate faith in God or in God-like idols is to look where we think we will find salvation. And through this lens, I think idolatry, idolatry pops up all around. Think about it. If so-and-so is elected next month, we'll be saved or doomed, which is the opposite of salvation. If this person gets appointed to that position, we'll be doomed. We'll be saved. These lives matter more, or those lives matter more. If I have this drink, it'll help me deal with the pain. If I get this job or promotion or spouse, I'll be released from pain, loneliness, and despair. Now, to be clear, Tillich doesn't suggest we can't have those hopes, fears, concerns, and habits they are very much a part of living. They aren't in themselves idols. It's when they interfere with our faith in the true ultimate concern, which is God, that they become idols. Especially if we think that God is at work only in that election outcome, or in that nation, or in that appointment. That's idolatry. And I think you'd agree we see it on both sides. You see, God is at work in all of us, God's covenant is to bring us all together, to heal all divisions. 
make the lion lie with the lamb, to put all things in subjection under his Christ. And as the church, we are called to be the workshop, the testing grounds of that great healing project, both within our walls and out in the world. We're called to help heal all divisions. And you know these next few weeks are going to be brutal. The need for healing will be greater than ever. I invite us to call upon God's healing powers now and then later, regardless of the outcome. And we start today, we start with healing ourselves because we're all probably a little broken lately, aren't we? Then we heal our divisions and we heal our nation. We heal the world, not because some of us are uniquely God-given, but because we're all God-given. All of us are created to love God with all our hearts, souls, and might and love our neighbor, all our neighbors, as ourselves. And that's when true change, real change, is going to come. Let's not get distracted. It's been a long, long time coming, but I know a change is going to come. Oh, yes, it will. Amen.